0: And that was an excerpt of Writings on Disobedience and Democracy, sung by Vinny Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics in the U.S. and beyond. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all of the back episodes and find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. There you'll find a link to send me a message. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this and all my podcasts free and independent. First up, we have a piece from FAIR.org, written by David L. Wilson. Crediting Xenophobia Rather Than Organizing with Raising Workers' Wages The Economist on February 15, 2020, ran a brief article with a startling headline. Immigration to America is down. Wages are up. Are the two related? Maybe, the article's anonymous author answered, at least for the short term. A few on the right were quick to cite this conclusion as support for former President Trump's efforts to deter immigration. Amazing how that works, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted. Thanks, real Donald Trump. Breitbart's Neil Monroe used the article to claim that immigration restrictions were driving up blue-collar wages, and those extra wages are stabilizing the U.S. economy. The Economist article didn't get much public attention beyond these references, but we can expect more claims of the sort as conservative politicians and media react to Biden administration moves to address wage disparity and to reverse some of Trump's xenophobic policies. A preview came on February 16, when Utah Senator Mitt Romney tweeted that he and a fellow Republican, Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, were introducing legislation to raise the federal minimum wage, but only in exchange for further restrictions on undocumented immigrants seeking jobs. We must protect American workers, Romney explained. The economist's argument is based on a pay increase that low-wage workers received during the Trump years. Nominal wages for U.S. workers without a high school diploma jumped by nearly 10% in 2019, according to the article, while most workers have only received an increase of 2-3% in recent years. Why would low-wage workers be getting a disproportionate boost? The obvious answer is that state and local governments have been raising their minimum wage requirements over the past few years. The Brookings Institute finds that low-paid workers in states with sizable minimum wage increases have seen their real pay rise three times as much as similar workers in states that failed to raise the minimum. The Economist admits that minimum wage hikes may be one of, quote, many factors for wage increases, but it focuses on a different explanation. Net immigration to the United States, the number of immigrants entering minus the number leaving, fell to 595,000 in 2019, the lowest number for the decade. So slower growth in the immigrant population could have cut down the number of low-wage immigrants competing for jobs with low-wage U.S.-born workers, and this would then drive up wages for the latter group. There's a big problem with this argument, however. The lack of any evidence that Trump's policy changes significantly reduced the number of low-wage immigrant workers. Undocumented immigrants are disproportionately employed in low-wage jobs. As of 2014, undocumented immigrants only made up about 5% of the total workforce, but represented some 31% of drywall installers, 24% of maids and housekeepers, and 20% of grounds maintenance workers. Documented immigrants also work in these jobs, as do many U.S. citizens, but they often find more remunerative employment. The official U.S. immigration system, meanwhile, favors wealthier, better-educated applicants. Nearly half of the foreign-born authorized to enter the United States over the last decade have a college degree, a higher rate than the U.S.-born population. These better-paid, authorized immigrants seem to have been the ones most impacted by Trump's immigration policies. A large part of the reduction in recent immigration results from the former administration's assault on legal channels for entering the country and acquiring lawful residence, the Muslim ban, the drastic reduction of refugee resettlement, the de facto dismantling of the asylum system, and the new bureaucratic hurdles in the visa application process. In contrast, Trump did less to lower the number of undocumented workers. As the Migration Policy Institute has noted, The Trump administration deported less than half as many unauthorized immigrants during its first three fiscal years than did the Obama administration during the same time frame. The undocumented population may even have risen slightly from 2017 to 2018. What really works? In any case, the economists' argument depends on a supposed correlation between the number of low-wage immigrants and the pay of low-wage U.S.-born workers. But most recent history doesn't show any such correlation. The Pew Research Center reports that unauthorized immigration soared in the late 1990s from 5.7 million to 8.6 million, while the period from 2010 to 2014 brought a small decline. Did low-wage workers lose out in the first period and make gains in the second? Not at all. According to a study by the Economic Policy Institute, wages for the bottom 10th percentile of U.S. workers rose in the late 1990s and fell during the years from 2010 to 2014. It's not really surprising that The economists chose to focus on immigration policy rather than minimum wage regulations as an explanation for pay increases. Corporate media tend to be critical of calls to lift the wage floor, often citing exaggerated claims about unemployment, and dire but unfounded warnings about the destruction of restaurants and other small businesses. Quote, A $15 minimum wage would hurt those it's meant to help, an opinion piece on CNN Business advises. What's even worse for both Trump backers and corporate publicists is the way the wage increases were won. Through campaigns by the low-wage workers themselves. Groups like Fight for 15 organized, marched, and walked out often with strong participation by immigrant workers to push state legislatures and city councils into doing the right thing. These efforts are continuing. A number of fast-food workers held strikes on February 16 to demand a $15 federal minimum wage. For years, the media narrative has been that repressive immigration policies Billions spent on immigration enforcement, families torn apart, thousands dying on the southwestern border, will somehow lead to wage hikes. They haven't, and they won't. What really works is organization and class struggle. And indeed, that is the way that $15 an hour minimum wage has been enacted in a number of states and cities. All of which uh, are phased-in approaches; none of which are immediate moves to $15 an hour. So we're we're talking now in 2021 about a $15 an hour minimum wage that has been passed in some places, but hasn't been realized in very many of those places yet. They're still on the on the gradual uptick. Um, New York may be one of the few that has reached the $15 mark. By now, it's not enough. The fifteen-dollar minimum wage has been fought for for, f- for at least five years, if not more. A fifteen-dollar minimum wage was necessary in 2015 and 2016, when when Bernie was running against Hillary, and and it was part of Bernie's platform. It was necessary then. We're in 2021. We've just gone through a hell of a year in which millions of people have lost their jobs, have had to, if, if possible at all, settle for other jobs, often lower paying. And we need a $20 minimum wage at least. And we need that now. We don't need that in the future. And the Democrats are still dicking around. With $15 an hour. And I don't think $15 an hour is bad. If $15 an hour is what can be won now, then it needs to be won now. but, But we should not delude ourselves that $15 an hour is an adequate living wage in 2021 or in 2025 or in 2028 or in 2030 when whatever bill gets passed, that number gradually creeps up. $15 an hour, 15, 15, if it passes and Joe Biden is already talking it down, Joe Biden is the worst. He comes in, he comes in with the middling of middle proposals for what is necessary for economic success and, and many other, other items, other areas, healthcare, you know, is another big example. He comes in with the most middling proposal. And then he, he uses that as his starting point for negotiation and negotiates himself down. And he negotiates himself down before the negotiations are even, you know, heavily underway. The the $15 an hour level passed in the budget re- budget reconciliation in the Senate and in the House. And Biden already is discussing how well it's probably going to be cut when they get together and, and reconcile the language for the final bill. He's already discussing that it's not going to be in the final bill. He's a master of asking for little and settling for less, but hell, he's going to give us all a Harriet Tubman, $20 bill. Enjoy. Don't spend it all in one place. Here's a piece from BusinessInsider.com. This is written by Ken Jacobs. Last month, Congress reintroduced the Raise the Wage Act legislation to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour and give 32 million working people a much needed raise. Increasing the minimum wage is an urgent, necessary step that President Joe Biden and Congress must take to combat the nation's pandemic-induced economic crisis. A $15 minimum wage would be life-changing for many workers and their families. It could mean the difference between poverty and being able to put food on table, building a savings account, or investing in their children's future. Beyond the working families who will get a raise, every single American taxpayer has a stake in raising the minimum wage. When corporations like McDonald's pay poverty wages, Workers often turn to public safety net programs to make ends meet. A recent study finds that families of half of the workers who would receive a pay increase under the proposed $15 minimum wage bill in Congress are enrolled in one or more public safety net programs at a cost of $107 billion a year. Some lawmakers, including Senate Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders, are calling on Congress to employ a process known as budget reconciliation, which allows legislation that changes government spending or revenues to pass by a simple majority vote not subject to a filibuster. Our study on the public cost of low wages supports Sanders' contention that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour could have a measurable savings to the federal budget a key consideration in determining whether the legislation meets the criteria for moving through the reconciliation process. This is backed up by new research finding that a $15 minimum wage could save the federal budget at least $65 billion per year. The federal minimum wage has stalled at $7.25 an hour since 2009, the longest ever period without an increase since the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed in 1938, a $15 minimum wage would bring savings to our safety net system, funds that can be redirected to other essential needs. As we look at recovery from pandemic related unemployment and recessions, it is especially important that cash strapped states are able to target public funds for maximum community benefit. In our study, we look at working families in the 42 states that have not passed a $15 minimum wage law. Two thirds of fast food workers, half of childcare workers, and three out of five home care workers in these states are paid so little that their families rely on public assistance. These are workers like Taiwana Milligan, a McDonald's worker from Charleston. Taiwana is raising three children: her son, who has sickle cell disease, and her niece and nephew, on a paltry. hourly wage from McDonald's, stitching together safety net programs like Medicaid and food stamps to make ends meet. Compounded by wage stagnation is the economic and racial inequality the pandemic has laid bare. Many low-wage workers, disproportionately women and workers of color, are in service occupations and are more likely to rely on public transportation for their commute. They work every day to meet our essential needs while placing themselves and their families at a higher risk for COVID-19 exposure. Corporations have not increased pay to compensate for the increased hazards workers face. Raising the minimum wage is an important step in addressing this racial inequality exacerbated by the pandemic. A new study finds that minimum wage increases help advance racial equity. Other research shows additional positive effects, such as reducing child poverty and neglect, and improving children's health and adult mental health. The effects will also bring budget savings. A $15 minimum wage would begin to lift up our nation's working families at a time when they desperately need the most help. When workers and their families benefit, so does our entire community. The unprecedented health and economic crisis we're in today demand a bold plan and swift action. President Biden was right when he exhorted, A crisis of deep human suffering is in plain sight, and there is no time to waste. We have to act, and we have to act now. Sure, that's what the president said, in general, about the crisis. But then, I already mentioned what he said, about $15 an hour minimum wage. So it's not part of his policy to act and act now. Nor is health care for all part of his policy to act and act now. One more piece on the $15 minimum wage. This is by Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II. is published at CommonDreams.org. The fight for a $15 minimum wage is a fight for racial justice 62 million people in the United States make less than $15 an hour and here's the truth the fight to raise the minimum wage to a living wage of $15 is as important as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 for black people it's taken us 400 years to get to 725 an hour we can't wait any longer People in Appalachia can't wait any longer. Poor white people, brown people, we cannot wait any longer. And we won't be silent anymore. The low wage workers, tipped workers, people making less than $15, were already in a kind of depression before the COVID 19 pandemic hit. This is deadly. Hundreds of people are dying a day from poverty. Many of them are low-wage workers, tipped workers, people getting sick unnecessarily. Meanwhile, tens of millions of people still lack health care. When it comes to the $15 minimum wage, some politicians say they're worried about small businesses. But we have to ask them, have they voted for universal health care for everybody? Because if they were really worried about small businesses and their costs, they would pass universal health care so that small businesses didn't have to pay that money to cover their workers. If they were really worried about these businesses, they would pay people a living wage. Because guess what? The people with living wages are going to spend that money. And guess where they're going to spend it? Back in the businesses. We cannot get this close and then fall back. We need to say to President Biden, to Democrats, to Republicans, to Senators, to all of them, don't turn your back on the $15 an hour minimum wage. Listen, 55% of poor, low-wealth people voted for this current ticket. That's the mandate. The mandate is in the people who voted, not in the backslapping of Senators and Congress It's the people who voted. And if we turn our backs now, It will hurt 62 million poor, low-wealth people who have literally kept this economy alive, who were the first to have to go to jobs, first to get infected, first to get sick, first to die. We cannot be the last to get relief and the last to get treated and paid properly. Protect us, respect us, and pay us. The truth of the matter is, there can be no domestic tranquility without the establishment of justice. That's not what the Reverend William Barber says. It's what the Constitution says. The establishment of justice precedes domestic tranquility. And you can only hold domestic tranquility when you promote the general welfare of all people. Now, some argue that a $15 wage can't pass through budget reconciliation. That's nothing but an excuse. The fact of the matter is, when Republicans wanted to pass tax cuts and cut welfare, they used reconciliation. One time, when the parliamentarian gave them the wrong answer, they fired the parliamentarian and got another parliamentarian to give them the right answer. So there's one set of rules that apply for corporations, and there's another set of rules when it comes to poor and low-wealth people. And that's why we're saying to Democrats, don't play the reconciliation game. It only takes a simple majority of 51 votes to overturn what the parliamentarian says. Let's be real about this. People turned out to vote, and it's time for this to happen. Back during the New Deal, people said to President Roosevelt that the minimum wage was going to break the country. You know what Roosevelt said to them? He said, any business that doesn't want to pay people the minimum wage does not belong in America. He said, you don't have a right to exist in this country if you don't want to pay people a basic minimum wage. 57 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. called for a $2 an hour minimum wage, which would be over $15 today. A few weeks ago, all the politicians were saying, let's follow Dr. King. Let's hear Dr. King's message of love. Well, you can't hear the message of love without hearing the love and the justice connected together. To go backwards on this would be morally indefensible, constitutionally inconsistent, and economically insane. We cannot address racial equity if we do not address the minimum wage of $15. There's no such thing as racial equity when you just address police reform and prisons, but you don't address the issue of economic justice. And if you address economic justice, guess what? It helps black people and white people and brown people, and Latino people, it helps everybody. Everybody in, nobody out. When people, regardless of their race, their color, their creed, their sexuality, their disability, come together to fight, to change the narrative, to demand, and to vote, this is the coalition that the aristocracy and the greedy always fear. My grandma used to say, work while it is day, because the night comes. She got that out of the Bible, and Isaiah 10 says, Woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights, who make women and children their prey. We have to act like we have one shot on this. Tomorrow is not promised. It is time to push through every nonviolent tool we have. We know that in every battle, if we fight, we win and if we don't fight we can't win let's go forward together not one step back and that is brilliantly put covers just about all of it and when when the US federal government finally passes a federal m- minimum wage of $15 It should not be phased in. It should be instant, date given, boom. Every worker, every employee in the United States gets at least $15. Then, instead of a phased in approach, because some small businesses will have real fiscal challenge and harm in paying a $15 wage, they should set up a program for those small businesses, for certain criteria businesses, means-tested, the only good means-testing out there, they should have a means-tested program. If you're a small business under certain conditions, then the federal government will have a, will cover a portion of that minimum wage and phase it out over five years. So, for example you'll pay $10 in year 1 and the government will pay 5 and your employee will get 15 starting in year 1 in year 2 you'll pay 11 and the government will cover 4 etc for 5 years till the government coverage of the minimum is phased out so our next story moves us from the income side of the equation to the expense side of the equation This is written by Brett Wilkins and is published at CommonDreams.org. New Economic Study Demolishes Myth About Student Debt, parroted by Joe Biden. The latest annual student debt report from the social science research group Jane Family Institute, published Thursday, belies claims by President Joe Biden, who earlier this week said he would not cancel $50,000 in federal student loan debt per borrower, that such a move would disproportionately benefit people who attend elite private universities. The 2021 Student Debt and Young America report, authored by JFI's Laura Beamer and Edward Nilage begins by noting that young people are, quote, overrun with student debt. This crisis is a culmination of waning government funding for higher education, wage stagnation, wealth inequality, and a misleading emphasis on obtaining high credentials, all leading to the financial gap between college prices and later earnings, they write. In 2020, aggregate balances reached $1.66 trillion in 2019 dollars, 122% higher in real dollars than in 2010. The authors continue, Not surprisingly, the number of borrowers, the amount they owe, and the number of loans each borrower acquires have all increased over the time period. In 2019, 18-35 to year olds with student loan debt owed nearly $35,000 on average, compared to just over $28,000 in 2009. Back in 2009, there were only 32 million federal borrowers. In 2019, that number swelled to 43 million. The study notes marked racial disparities in student debt, with black people suffering both the largest increase over time and the highest median amount owed in 2019 at $20,236. Asian students experienced the worst debt inequality in twenty nineteen. Although their median debt was eighteen thousand five hundred and forty eight that year, their average debt balance was thirty eight thousand eight hundred sixty. Critically, the study finds quote, because low and lower middle income communities see the worst debt to income ratios, they would see the largest portion of their income freed up through student debt forgiveness. Young adult borrowers in low- and lower-middle-income communities would receive an outsized share of forgiveness in aggregate dollars compared to middle- and upper-income communities. This flies in the face of the implications of Biden's remarks at a CNN town hall Tuesday evening in Milwaukee, where the president said he doesn't want to forgive billions of dollars of debt for people who have gone to Harvard and Yale and Penn instead of using that money to provide money for early education for young children who come from disadvantaged circumstances. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, an outspoken proponent of student debt forgiveness, rebutted Biden's assertion by asking, who cares what school someone went to? Entire generations of working-class kids were encouraged to go into more debt under the guise of elitism. This is wrong. Casio cortez tweeted late Tuesday. The case against student loan forgiveness is looking shakier by the day. We can and should do it. Keep pushing. Speaking of the freshly published JFI study, Beamer on Thursday tweeted that she was waiting until this report came out to address the ridiculous Harvard, Yale, and Penn comment from Biden, calling it a myth that borrowers attending elite schools would overwhelmingly benefit from from forgiveness compared to their peers elsewhere. Other progressive politicians and advocates also pushed back on Biden's remarks. Representative Ayanna Presley affirmed that the president could cancel student debt with a stroke of a pen. Americans for Financial Reform, which has led demands for Biden to cancel $50,000 of student debt per borrower through executive action on Wednesday, decried Biden's proposed $10,000 per person debt relief as inadequate. Quote, far more than $10,000 in cancellation is required, the group said, to provide aid that 44 million families and the economy need. And debt forgiveness should not stop at $50,000. The government owns the vast majority of college debt, and they could wipe it all out in short order, which would, for the vast majority of those borrowers, free up cash for them to spend in the economy. This would be a massive economic boost if this money was not going to service that old debt, but instead going to pay for goods and services and housing and sometimes as needed food and shelter to support someone's living conditions, especially in this time of COVID when so many millions of people have lost their jobs and have not found new jobs or are, um, have found new jobs that don't support them in the way their previous job did. This kind of economic boost would be phenomenal. Next up is a piece published at AmsterdamNews.com. This is written by Farah Soufrant Forrest, who is an assembly member. Since our nation's founding, black Americans have existed as second-class economic citizens. Under the regime of chattel slavery, black Americans were sold and bought as property, but even their emancipation did not afford them equal economic rights. Decades of sharecropping gave way to the era of Jim Crow, while black Americans were continually subject to a system of economic apartheid. Black people were barred from certain educational institutions, various financial institutions, and a number of employment opportunities, which makes economic advancement nearly impossible. Today, the median wealth of white households sits at $180,000, while the median wealth of black households in America is merely $23,000. This simple statistic is a chilling reminder of the enormous racial wealth gap in our country and how it is fundamental to the culture of white supremacy in our country. While white hoods and burning crosses are no longer ubiquitous, the economic apartheid that still exists in our country has wreaked havoc on its communities. In the face of each economic downturn, and COVID-19 is no exception, black Americans have faced the brunt of the trauma During an economic downturn, it is black Americans who are more likely to lose their jobs and face food insecurity and the threat of eviction. Today's brutal economic reality is a direct consequence of the attitudes of a ruling elite that has seen black lives and black labor as disposable, allowing wealth to accrue often to white families, but very rarely to black ones. This is a historic injustice that can only be solved with radical action. If we are to end this system of economic apartheid and shrink the dangerous racial wealth gap, we must tax the rich. Today's tax code is structurally designed to give wealthy households made up of mainly white people access to tax savings and reduction options. The wealthy have the luxury of accruing even more wealth from the appreciation of their financial assets, by avoiding taxes on large inheritances, and by paying a smaller share of their income in taxes as a result of these benefits. Given Black and Latinx families are consistently less likely to own homes, receive inheritances, or to hold financial assets, this shows that these tax mechanisms clearly play a role in perpetuating the racial wealth gap. To further compound racial inequality, Other parts of our tax code essentially function as giveaways to the wealthiest white households. Take the tax deduction for income earned from pass-through businesses. Over half of the savings from this deduction alone accrues exclusively to the top 1% of households who are mostly white. Similarly, the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy found that 80% of the savings from Trump's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act ultimately flowed to white households, with only about 5% of the savings benefiting black households. These unjust tax laws are representative of the deliberate actions our federal and state governments have taken to maintain an economic caste system. They allow the wealth, therefore the power, of white Americans to grow year by year, while black and brown Americans struggle each year to make ends meet. These tax cuts also come at the expense of public services, which millions of black and brown Americans rely on. Simply put, our governments have created a system that allows the rich to grow richer while black and brown Americans suffer. We cannot defeat this system by attempting to climb an economic ladder designed to keep us at the bottom. We must instead advocate for racial change, and we must start here, in New York. Early this year, a groundbreaking coalition of grassroots organizations and progressive legislators announced their support for the Invest in Our New York Act. This platform of six sweeping tax proposals would help New York undo the racist legacy deeply embedded in our state's economy. The heirs tax would tax large inheritances to end the accumulations of billions by some of New York's richest white families. The progressive income tax would create an income tax system that shifts the biggest burden from the working class black and brown people to richer white New Yorkers who can afford it. The Wall Street tax would repeal former President Trump's corporate giveaway to mostly white New Yorkers. These proposals and more would raise $50 billion for our state to invest in the public services millions of black and brown New Yorkers rely on. So much more is needed to undo the trauma of our nation's racist past. But the Invest in Our New York Act can begin to help us right those wrongs here in our state. The legislative package is a $50 billion redistribution of wealth to help end the racial wealth gap and dismantle economic white supremacy. $50 billion a year is more than enough money to support the black and brown struggling during COVID-19 and fully fund public services, such as the MTA and public education system, which millions of black New Yorkers depend on. But furthermore, $50 billion a year is a down payment on transformative social programs, such as the New York Health Act, a Green New Deal, as well as a program to build thousands of new units of social housing. While targeted relief or reparations is also needed, universal programs to transform our state, from one that serves a few to one that works for the many, is key to ending the economic apartheid in our state. This year, my colleagues and I in Albany have a choice. We can continue to play politics as usual and uphold the racist economic system that has gone unchallenged and unchanged in this country for centuries. Or, we can turn the spirit of Black Lives Matter into an economic reality. This summer, millions, including myself, took to the streets to demand action in the face of racial inequality. Saying Black Lives Matter is about more than opposition to police violence. It is about recognizing that every black life should have the ability to reach their full potential. That cannot happen in a system of economic apartheid, and that cannot happen under our current tax system. If we are to begin to truly fight white supremacy here in New York, we must tax the rich. Speaking of the rich, one of the ways that they get rich is by uh, vulture capitalism, more commonly known as venture capitalism, in which organizations buy various types of businesses or invest, I should say, into various types of businesses, suck out a ton of profit, leave those businesses with two tons of debt, and then sell them or pass them along to somebody else or just abandon
1: them to go bankrupt. Here's one of those stories. One of the first times I talked to Judy Barry on the phone and I had never met her. I said, Judy, you know, the earth is not dying. It's being killed. and The people who are killing it have names and addresses. What I mean by that is through power structure research, through hunting very carefully, we can find out the names and addresses of the people who really have their foot on our necks, the people who are really causing the damage. And then nonviolently... My vision, my dream is that thousands, thousands, millions of people go to those homes, go to the places where they shop, go to the places where they take their vacations, sit in the doorways, lie in front of the cars, and when we're hauled away to jail, other people take their place, surround them, put them in jail. Oh, yes, I know it's an air-conditioned jail and the food's pretty good, but they're in lager, they're surrounded, like, at, like in uh, Montreal, uh, like at Genoa. They're behind the barbed wire, they're behind the concrete. We've got them in prison, we've got to understand that that they're afraid of us, all right? Let's make sure that they can't enjoy their ill-gotten gain.
0: This piece is written by Peter Elkind and is published by ProPublica.org. In a David and Goliath battle, a group of Rhode Island officials and a union for hospital workers have so far stymied a multi-billion-dollar private equity fund's attempt to unload its controlling stake in a national for-profit hospital chain. Investors led by the private equity firm Leonard Green & Partners previously extracted $645 million in dividends from the investment, and the firm now seeks to leave behind another $1.3 billion in financial obligations At the chain. In the face of more than a year of often vehement public opposition in Rhode Island, the hospital chain suddenly agreed in the final days of December to pay $27.25 million to resolve a group of lawsuits they had previously refused to settle. But a January 29 deadline for the state to approve the deal has been extended indefinitely, and other obstacles remain. Leonard Green and the hospital chain Prospect Medical Holdings were the subject of a ProPublica investigation in September that explored Prospect's history of patient care violations, including some that posed immediate jeopardy to patients, according to multiple government findings, along with complaints about deteriorating facilities, broken financial commitments, and allegations of Medicare fraud surrounding the company. These problems surfaced over the past decade after the private equity firm purchased the company in 2010. Prospect has defended its quality of care and denied any improprieties. Leonard Green, which owns about 60% of the hospital chain, announced plans in October 2019 to sell its stake to Prospect CEO Sam Lee and his longtime business partner for $12 million plus the assumption of $1.3 billion in lease obligations. The $12 million is to be paid by the company, not the two executives. As Prospect previously told ProPublica, in effect, the company's money is their money. At the time the deal was announced, Prospect said it expected the sale to close by the spring of 2020. The transaction breezed past regulators in four states where Prospect owns a total of 15 hospitals. But not so in Rhode Island, where Prospect owns its other two hospitals. The sale of the two Rhode Island hospitals, and thus the entire deal, requires approval from the state's Health Department and Attorney General, which first must conduct a review process to assure the transaction meets nine statutory criteria. The Rhode Island officials have subjected the transaction to a high level of scrutiny. There have been multiple rounds of public hearings and questions to both Prospect and Leonard Green, generating thousands of pages of submissions and response. The state has sought details on topics such as COVID-19's impact on the company's finances and has requested interviews with multiple company officials, including the CEO. As criticism of Prospect grew during 2020, Rhode Island officials first delayed their decision on the sale to November, citing missing documents and unanswered questions, then extended it again to the end of January 2021. On January 18, the Health Department and Attorney General wrote to Prospect, confirming that the January 29, 2021 deadline would be extended, and advised the company, quote, as of this date, we do not have a new deadline for completing the review. Proposed legislation in Rhode Island threatens to further stall the deal. The bill comes from a state Senate president, Dominic Ruggiero, a Democrat, who previously wrote a letter urging regulators to subject the prospect sale to, quote, the utmost scrutiny, and warning that approval posed a probability of serious harm to the health and welfare of all Rhode Islanders. On January 12th, Ruggiero introduced a bill setting prospects to Rhode Island hospitals that would impose a one-year moratorium on all hospital ownership transfers, quote, Involving a for-profit corporation as acquiree or acquirer. The bill has nine co-sponsors. Prospect and Leonard Green declined to comment on the bill, responding to questions through an outside spokesman. They said they have no intention of abandoning their plans for the company's sale. Quote, Based on our communications with Rhode Island regulators, they stated, we expect to complete the transaction in the coming months. Prospect has managed to silence one prominent group of Rhode Island critics by reversing course and on December 30 agreeing to settle multiple fraud lawsuits with a $27.25 million payment. The money is part of a broader settlement with a court-appointed receiver for the Employee Retirement Plan at Our Lady of Fatima Hospital, one of Prospect's two facilities in the state. The plan was declared insolvent and placed in receivership in 2017. The receiver then sued the company, asserting that Prospect had misled the public and 2,700 current and past hospital employees about the pension fund's financial health. The receiver demanded that Prospect help make the fund whole. The company denied the claims, pointing out that its 2014 purchase of the hospitals included contract language absolving it of any future liability for the retirement plan. The settlement, subject to multiple court approvals that will take several months, will end the receiver's public opposition to Prospect's pending sale. As late as December 10, the receiver's special counsel told a public hearing that Lee and his partner were predators using the hospitals as their private piggy banks. A financial consultant for the receiver also warned in a report the Prospect's financial statements through fiscal year 2019 even preceding the financial stress caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, revealed a worsening, quote, state of insolvency and imminent bankruptcy absent a big capital infusion. The settlement agreement explicitly requires the receiver to notify state regulators that his objections to the sale are withdrawn. It also bars any statements to media which would reasonably be expected to cause the reader or hearer to question the solvency or honesty of or the quality of care or other services provided by prospect. So, pretty standard gag order. Other prospect critics remain undeterred. They include United Nurses and Allied Professionals, the Union for Hospital Workers at Our Lady of Fatima, elected officials, including five Democratic members of the U.S. Congress, Rhode Island State Treasurer, and its Senate Majority Leader, and the Private Equity Stakeholder Project, a union-backed research group that has produced critical reports about Leonard Green's conduct and lobbied the firm's public pension fund investors. Prospect has conducted a public relations counter-offensive. After the retirement plan settlement was announced, the company took out a large ad in the Providence Journal stating that by making the $27 million payment, it was, quote, "...helping our retirees and employees." In doing so, quote, because we are fully committed to Rhode Island. A second ad solicited support for the company's sale. They're so committed to Rhode Island that they're trying to sell. Today, Prospect seeks state approval to allow its founders to buy out the outside investors in Prospect. With all that Prospect has done for Rhode Island and will continue to do, we hope the state will recognize the benefits and approve this request. The company issued a press release noting that an outside monitor for the state had found that Prospect had met the commitments it had made for capital spending at the two hospitals. The union responding to Prospect's claims with a postcard that is being mailed this week to 4,000 state opinion makers, it warns, Rhode Islanders beware, Prospect Medical Holdings is a wolf in sheep's clothing. The mailer urges recipients to press state officials to reject the proposed sale. Chris Kalachi, general counsel for the Fatima Hospital Union, said his group is also considering running a radio ad to boost public opposition to the sale. The union, which initially welcomed Prospect's acquisition of the two hospitals in 2014, has waged a series of battles with the company management in the years since. Kalachi told ProPublica the attorneys representing Prospect approached him to explore what it would take to get the union to drop its opposition. But that the discussions went nowhere, Quote, we can't find anything that will make us feel comfortable. They'll be good stewards of these safety net hospitals in Rhode Island, He said, as far as the union's concerned, they're not welcome in Rhode Island. At least part of the delay in improving the sale in Rhode Island appears to be self-inflicted by prospect in late October. The company, which has a lengthy history of litigation, threatened to sue an accounting firm hired by Rhode Island to assess the deal, because a former accountant at the firm made critical comments to ProPublica about a company that prospect CEO Lee had been involved with more than a decade ago. In response, Rhode Island terminated the accounting firm's contract to avoid any perception of impropriety, motivation, and influence. The state informed Prospect that the termination would delay the review process as Rhode Island needed to hire a new accounting firm. That, in turn, led Prospect to retract its threat of legal action and say, in effect, never mind. It was too late. Prospect's about face, a Rhode Island official responded, couldn't remove, quote, the initial taint of the original receipt of threatened litigation. And finally, a little look at the solution to... Vulture Capitalism in the Healthcare Industry in the United States. This piece is published at jacobinmag.com is written by Megan Day. The standard case for a single-payer health insurance system is pretty well known. Anyone can get care without courting financial ruin. Monumental personal decisions, like when to have a child or whether to leave or take a job, no longer hinge on the whims of an employer or the dysfunctions of the private insurance market. Surprise hospital bills, endless phone calls with insurance companies, juggling premiums, copays, and deductibles, all will be things of the past. The case against single-payer often boils down to a single word, rationing. When critics peddle scare stories about Canadian or British waiting lists, they're trying to conjure images of scarcity and austerity, the social democratic equivalent of Soviet breadlines. The truth, of course, is that you only have to look around to see that healthcare in America is already rationed. Try finding an in-demand specialist willing to take your bronze-tier insurance plan or paying for high-priced specialty prescriptions out of pocket. Healthcare rationing is a fact of life in this country. But there's another important point to be made about single payer and rationing. In many places around the world, national health insurance not only isn't austere, it's downright luxurious. Americans with our predatory healthcare system can be easy to impress. The simple fact that the French can visit any health facility in the entire country, for example, seems astonishing. No provider is out of network, because there's no such thing as a network. Instead, there's a universal public insurance system that can't turn applicants down, can't terminate insurance, and almost never denies claims. In France, there's no such thing as a deductible. Insurance kicks in from the first euro build. Since there's no need to hire people to rifle through reams of paperwork and make judgment calls about denying claims and refusing coverage because the system has no stockholders to pay dividends to, the French insurance system spends next to nothing on paperwork. Prices for treatments are fixed and cost the patient next to nothing. For Americans accustomed to the need to change doctors every time they change plans, change plans every time they change jobs, and navigate things like claims denials, unpredictable charges, and endless paperwork, it seems extravagant. But the conveniences don't stop there, since French providers aren't carved up into networks. The government is able to issue what is called a carte vitale, or life card, to all legal residents over the age of 15. With a patient's permission, the card contains centralized information on the patient's every medical visit, treatment, prescription, surgery, and so on, going back to 1998. The physician inserts the carte vitale into a card reader, and the patient's medical records pop up on a screen. Not only does it help doctors offer informed care, but it makes billing simple and eliminates much of the nightmare of transferring medical records. The physician logs the treatments, hits a button, and then waits roughly three days to be paid. When doctors go on house calls, they take a portable card reader with them. That's right. In France, they make house calls. Patients can request one any time by calling a round-the-clock national hotline. The visit costs just 31 euros. The bare-bones austerity of American health care becomes truly glaring when we look at maternal, infant, and elderly care. In Holland, anyone who gives birth to a baby is entitled to a Kramversorgster or in-home postnatal nurse covered by the country's basic government-funded health insurance. The Kromfersorgster watches over the health of the newborn and mother, provides medical advice, and helps out with bathing, diaper changes, and even laundry. The care workers employed in the nation's Kromfersorg system work an average of 49 hours over 8 days per family. The program is universal and not income-dependent. A woman who works as a Kromfersorgster is entitled to a Crohnversorgster of her own. France's National Health Programme has something similar, with nurses assigned to new mothers at home for the first week. It also includes access to a network of neighborhood clinics where new mothers can bring their infants at any time, even without an appointment. The clinics offer universal provisions of postnatal physical therapies, including la reéducation education which helps mothers retrain the muscles of their pelvic floor. Lightly ridiculed in the American press as a symbol of French profligacy, the therapy actually decreases the incidence of urinary incontinence and improves women's sex lives, while also making it safer and less painful to have more children, should they choose to do so. In Norway, where the system comes closer to what we might call true socialized medicine, where both the insurance and the provider systems are publicly run, new parents receive home visits from midwives on top of a generous allowance furnished by the state, which can be used however the parents see fit. The Norwegian government accomplishes this while spending significantly less per capita on health care than the United States. In T.R. Reed's The Healing of America, The American author asks a British friend to tally how much she spent having her baby in England. Twelve quid, she answers. Two for a copy of the sonogram photo. Ten for the taxi on delivery day. In the U.S., by contrast, women with insurance can expect to pay $3,400. And without insurance, the sky's the limit. With childbirth so expensive, maternal hospital stays have gotten shorter. New mothers are sent home within a couple of days and typically have an OBGYN checkup about six weeks after birth. Partly as a result, the U.S. has the highest maternal death rate in the rich world, almost three times that of the U.K. Long-term care is another area where universal health care systems deliver the goods. Eight million Americans require long-term care services, most of them elderly. As many as two-thirds can't afford to buy long-term care insurance, and Medicare doesn't cover extended stays in nursing homes. Without coverage, the price of assisted living is comparable to private college tuition. As a result, many middle-class Americans' best hope of affording long-term care is becoming eligible for Medicaid, which requires selling off assets and then draining nearly all personal savings to meet means-tested criteria. The Scandinavian countries cover all long-term care through the state, both in-home and in residential facilities. Denmark, Germany, Holland, and Norway all offer generous state benefits and compensation to people who take time out of the labor force to care for loved ones. The Czech Republic and Poland offer state-funded allowances to elderly people, in need of long-term care, similar to the Nordic child-benefit model. Japan, meanwhile, has implemented a universal publicly-funded insurance system specifically for long-term care, covering not just residential stays, but also drop-in community centers for the elderly. It also pays for caregivers to help with minor chores long before an elderly person becomes incapacitated. The point being to keep seniors in their homes and communities for as long as possible. When they do end up in assisted living facilities, they can benefit from the Japanese government's heavy investments in developing robots to assist with residential elder care, spanning from interactive stuffed animals to machines that can transfer a patient from bed to wheelchair. Japan implemented its long-term care insurance system when policymakers realized that changing family structures and rapid aging meant that relying on informal care would inevitably lead to a crisis like the one currently facing the United States. They made the choice to socialize care to avoid the dystopian scenario of millions of neglected, impoverished, elderly moldering in underfunded institutions. Precisely the scenario that American conservatives equate with public care systems. In a study of long-term care insurance recipients, one regular at a Japanese senior community center said, quote, Since I'm injured and can't move as well, I used to just lay there, stare at the ceiling, and listen to the radio, and feel the changing of the seasons. Then someone from the Hana House recommended to me if I would like to go to the day services. He described becoming active in crafting workshops at the center, which he claims increased his mobility. Because of this place, I have become a lot healthier. First and foremost, said another survey respondent, I feel a sense of safety. Politicians pushing a single-payer system will promise a utopia, but if they get their way, Americans will see the shambles that will remain of our healthcare system once the death spiral concludes its destructive path, warns The Federalist, a right wing publication. And yet, the U.S., with the most capitalist, market driven healthcare system of any developed nation, can't boast of France's postnatal vaginal rehabilitation therapy, Japan's state of the art elderly care robots or Germany's government-subsidized spa vacations for a 10-euro copay, and with our raging opioid crisis, shocking infant and maternal mortality rates, and incidences of death from treatable illness, the private insurance-based system is already caught in a death spiral. Luxury socialism isn't just a meme it's a working theory that holds that social care, among other things, isn't a zero-sum game. Marx and Engels saw that a society divided by class and driven by the profit imperative produces an abundance of resources alongside an abundance of unmet needs. Socialism, if it is about anything, is about matching our resources to our needs to improve our collective quality of life. Socialized health insurance and the comforts it provides would be a pretty good start. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. You remember, you can check out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can follow on Twitter at YCBneutral. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24 7 at Moving Train Radio. Dot .com And now a moment of zen. Thanks for listening.
2: It wasn't we the people who established the constitution, it was 55 rich white men who established the constitution. I know you're not supposed to say anything about the founding fathers. <laughs> there are fathers. We're all one family. Not so. The founding fathers were slaveholders and merchants and bondholders, really. And sure, they set up a government that was more democratic than other governments in the world. They set up a government that was independent of England, but did not set up a government. that was a government of the people. They set up a slaveholding government uh, that uh, was going to do the interests of the bondholders and the merchants, uh, the interests of the government and the interests of the people right from the beginning, we're not the same. And that same difference of interest has continued down to the present day. All through, look at the history of legislation in this country. It's class legislation. It's legislation that has always benefited the upper classes. There's always been subsidies for the corporations and subsidies for the railroads. They didn't call it welfare. When When the government began helping poor people, they called it welfare. When the government gave hundreds of millions of acres of land to the railroads, they didn't call that welfare. But the legislative history of this country is a history of legislation favoring the rich, to put it bluntly. And uh, there were some breakthroughs. There were some uh, oddities. There were some moments in history when this was not true. Uh, In the 1930s, something happened. In the 1960s, something happened. What happened is that people rose up all over the country and demanded change. And the demands grew so loud and, and so threatening that then, in the 1930s, we got Social Security and we got unemployment insurance and we got subsidized housing. And in the 60s, we got Medicare and Medicaid. So there have been moments in our history when the people and their desires and their anguish over their situation has broken through. Uh, and then Then we got legislation that moved away from the traditional class, upper class legislation of the government. But it is extremely important to understand this conflict of interest between government and us.